Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Okay, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to show a couple of slides here as we begin just to get a visual of a couple of things that I think you'll find interesting with respect to this passage. So remember, we're looking at these snippets from the life of Jesus that Mark has woven together for us. The one today follows what we considered last week, actually. Verse 21 through 34 happened on one day, on a Sabbath day. So we're looking at a, lo- a day in the life of Jesus here. So I think you find it interesting. Let me read the passage, and then we'll look at these couple of pictures. Verse 29. Notice that Jesus is not even mentioned by name here. It's he. He, he. But we know who Mark is writing about, because this book is all about him. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So let's look at this map. You know, Israel is in the news, as you know. There's activity in northern Israel right now. But I want you to know that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ primarily took place in the area known as Galilee. That's where he was raised, up in Nazareth. You can see Nazareth is right here. So he has begun his ministry right around the Sea of Galilee. He has called his first disciples, we saw earlier in this chapter, from, they were fishing, they were right on the shore in this area. Now what we're going to read today takes place in Capernaum. And I want you to see where that is. That's right at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And I got to visit Capernaum back in 2016. So I'd like you to see the Capernaum has been excavated. Not the entire village, but a good portion of it. And you, like many of the sites in Israel, you have to have an admission to go in and see some of these places. So here, here is the gate into Capernaum. This is where Jesus' ministry took place. 
Now, I want you to see an aerial view of this area. The gate that I just showed you would be right in there. So we came down this street and came to the gate. I think the bus parked somewhere out here. Now, what's really interesting, you see where this is, is the house of Peter. They believe it's this structure. And the reason why they believe that is because when it was discovered in 1968, they found devotional writings, sacred writings on the walls in several different ancient languages, indicating that that was a venerated place for Christians to gather in the late 1st century and early 2nd century. Right up here. The house, it is believed to be the house. They didn't find his name. So we don't know absolutely for sure that's his house. But it's speculated to be. The synagogue where we read last week Jesus was teaching is right in here. Only this synagogue is from the 4th century, this one, the ruins, but the original one is underneath. And there's a clear distinction in the rock that is used between the two. The lower one was made of basalt and the one on top is limestone. It's white. So you see, Peter's house was close in proximity to the synagogue. So we're looking at a day in the life of Jesus. So the Lord has encountered a demon-possessed man we saw after teaching in the synagogue from last week, verses 21 to 28. So he leaves the synagogue, notice verse 29, and he enters the house of Simon Peter. So the house of Simon Peter was right there by the synagogue, apparently. So it all adds up. So first of all, my sermon just has two main divisions this morning. First of all, I want you to notice Jesus' shortest recorded miracle. The shortest recorded miracle in the New Testament. And that's really significant. It's wonderful. And then I want to look at what the Lord did in the evening. How he spent the evening at Peter's house. Notice that little word immediately. See that verse 29? Used eight times in chapter 1. Over and over again, Mark uses the word immediately as he's putting together these different events in the life of Jesus. And it's the idea, it keeps the, it keeps the action moving. Jesus is a man on the move. He didn't come into this world to be on vacation when he came to earth. He wasn't kicking back and just enjoying himself. He had a mission to accomplish. He was here on a rescue mission. He came here on business, the business of his father, to take care of the problem of sin, man's fallen condition. So the Lord Jesus, he enters the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law, check this out for a second, 
Simon Peter was married. Those of you who come from a Roman Catholic background, just absorb that for a moment. Peter, the first pope, was married. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 9 and verse 5, I don't need to go into the context of this, you can just... What he says here, it's pretty clear. He says, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? This is Paul writing. As do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas. Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. In other words, Paul acknowledged that Peter was married. Peter had a believing wife who would who accompanied him, apparently, on some of his missions. So Peter's mother-in-law lay sick. Notice, he comes in, and his mother-in-law, we're not told what her name was, but she she was apparently in bed, she was lying down, she had a fever. Luke's version of this tells us that the fever was a high fever. And why is that significant? Well, because it's Luke, the beloved physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he uses a medical term for fever, Luke does, which is interesting too. Back in the ancient world, a fever was considered a disease. Apparently they didn't understand that a fever was a symptom. Like we know today, if you have a fever, there's an underlying cause. So in the ancient world, they saw a fever as an illness in itself. And notice, they they told the Lord Jesus about it. They told him, she has a fever. This was a a subtle uh, request for him to do something about it. This was a simple way of asking for prayer for her. You know, there's a couple examples of them Uh, presenting a case to Jesus in a similar way. Think of Jesus' first miracle in Cana of Galilee. This is recorded in John chapter 2. Jesus went to a wedding. And his very first public miracle was performed at a wedding. Here's a bride and groom celebrating, and a catastrophe happened. They ran out of wine early. This was the worst thing that could have happened. What an embarrassment for the groom, especially. And Jesus' Jesus' mother was there with him and the disciples. And she turned to him and said, they have no wine. They ran out of wine. In other words, my son, do something about it. They ran out of wine. And that's when he said... uh, or she said to them later, whatever he says to you, do it. That's the context of that quote from last sermon last week. And Jesus performed the miracle, a miracle of transubstantiation. He turned the big pots of water into wine. It was a wonderful thing. Then in John chapter 11, we have another situation like that. One of Jesus' favorite families to visit was Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, these three siblings that lived in Bethany. And Lazarus got sick. Apparently he was very sick, 
but Jesus was nowhere to be found. And they sent a message to him. He's off ministering somewhere else. And they simply said to him in a message, the one whom you love is sick. In other words, that was a way of asking him, come and do something about it. So my point in this, these are all kind of the same way. They're presenting to Jesus the problem. You know, when you're sick, this is a good thing to do. This is a good thing to remember. The first person we ought to go to when we're sick. Not necessarily run to the doctor unless it's an emergency, but to simply spread your case out before Jesus. Tell him about it. Tell him what your symptoms are. Lord, I feel rotten today. You know, in the 21st century, you might think, oh, she just has a fever. You know, she'll be okay. There's no illness that's trivial to him. If it's bothering us, it, it's a bother to him. It's a trouble to him. Present your case. When I was growing up and I was a little boy, I got sick very often, as many of you have uh, kids that have gotten sick a lot. And on a few occasions, I thought I was going to die. I was afraid of death. And turned to my mother and said, Mom, please pray for me. My first recourse as a kid, now when I look back on it, was to present my case to Jesus. I wasn't even a Christian yet, but I had some understanding that he is the one who I can present my need to, and he would hear and answer prayer. Pray for me. So he comes into the room where she is, And they tell him about her, verse 31, and he came in and he took her by the hand. Now Luke again gives us another little thing. It says, Luke says that Jesus stood over her. This is just like a doctor who comes into a room and he's got a sick patient. You've all seen images of the doctor standing at the bed. Here's the great physician standing over Peter's mother-in-law. And he takes her by the hand and he lifts her up. He took her by the hand, lifted her up. Notice the touch of Jesus Christ. This is the amazing touch of Jesus. It's gentle, compassionate, full of power. And two things happened the moment he did this. He didn't have to say anything. He simply touched her. And the Lord's miracles sometimes were like that. It was a touch, a spoken word, but there was power there. And she immediately regained her strength, the fever left her, number one, and she began to serve them. In other words, she received an instantaneous and complete healing. All at once, she was fully well. She didn't have to rest a little longer and kind of recuperate from this high fever No, she had all her energy and strength back immediately. It was, she felt great, well enough to get up and begin to serve. 
which may indicate that she prepared a meal for them. No doubt out of great gratitude to the Lord Jesus for what he did for her just then. When you've been touched by Christ, this is how you want to respond. Out of love to him, in service to him, and service to his people. So there it is, the shortest recorded miracle of Jesus. To heal her, he did have to heal that underlying inflammation. Viral or bacterial, as we would say today. There was something really wrong with Peter's mother-in-law that she was running a high fever. So he healed that unspecified illness that caused the fever. And the fever immediately went away. So she had a 98.6 immediately. A fever makes you feel horrible, as you all know. When you're an adult and you have 102, it's, uh, it's misery. Now, let's come to the second half of this little snippet. Verses 32 to 34, a summary of what Jesus did that evening. So this is still the same day. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath teaching. Not as the scribes taught, but he taught with authority, what we saw last week. Then he heals that demon-possessed man, freed him, liberated him from the demons that had captured him. Then he goes into Peter's house, right down the road from the synagogue, and heals his mother-in-law. Now, that evening, Mark goes on to say, at sundown. Now, why does he say that? Because it's the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath for the Jewish people begins on Friday at sunset and goes all the way through Saturday sunset. And during that time frame, you can't travel, you can't work. But as soon as the sun goes down, then all the people in Capernaum, They are bringing the sick people and those that are demon-possessed to Jesus. And where are they going? They're taking them to Peter's house. Because they can now travel. They can carry people that are sick. And the language here indicates that they kept on bringing people. So this, this was a steady stream of sick people that were being brought to him that evening. You know, Jesus' reputation as a healer and a miracle worker now is spreading. And this was one of the main reasons why he had crowds following him from place to place. He worked miracles for them. He fed them miraculously. We'll come to that story in another chapter. The feeding of 5,000 men from a little boy's lunch that consisted of a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. He says here that they brought all these people to him because they were expecting that he would do something for them. You know... We've seen several faith healers come and go in 
I have to say, the 20th century, because that's when I was born, as well as now. And I've gone to a couple of their meetings, the famous ones. Don't judge me for this, but I took my daughter, Heidi, to Benny Hinn. I'm sorry, when you got a child with cancer and there's, they've run out of options for treatment and so on, you get desperate. And I took her to the Long Beach Arena, hoping maybe something might happen. And it was full. The Long Beach Arena holds 15,000 people. And it was quite a sight because in one area of the Long Beach Arena, way over on the side where there were no chairs, they left it empty on the ground floor. There were people in hospital beds, on gurneys, ambulances brought them from the hospital and brought them to this healing service. (laughs) Faith healers have never had a hard time getting a crowd. Because illness and diseases is so common among the human family and people are desperate for a cure and would give anything if they could have their health back. They'd give all their wealth if they could be well again. People that are billionaires, for example. So this is, this is here in the ancient world the Lord Jesus had But he wasn't one who disappointed people. They went away healed. I want you to look at the language. The whole city showed up, it would appear. This is one of Mark's hyperboles. Mark does use hyperboles. He uses exaggerated statements in the same first chapter in verse 5 concerning the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, Mark says that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem went out into the wilderness to hear John preach. That's, That's hyperbole language. He doesn't mean every single person there, but a great number of them. And so that's what's being said here about the whole city was gathered together. It would appear everybody in Capernaum had come out and were there with some need to present to Jesus. So just imagine this. Think of this. Where did they go? They couldn't have been inside Peter's house, so they had to be outside. Maybe they were lined up, because my image of this is that Jesus saw every one of these people individually. He made eye contact with them. He either touched them or spoke to them. He, each one, had his undivided attention. In other words, he didn't just say, okay, all of you be healed, and he, he... No, 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 no. I think he saw them all individually. So that means this went on into quite a few hours into the evening. This is how Jesus was spending the day, a day in the life of Jesus. This was like an outdoor hospital. This was like a busy ER where all these people were. What a sight. They were lined up to see who? The great physician. The great physician, as he's called in the Gospels. That's not my title for Jesus. That's the title of the Gospels for him. He's called the great physician. And he healed many. Now, that does not mean he healed some, but not all. That's not the meaning. The meaning is, the emphasis is on the number. He healed many people. Doesn't tell us how many it was. You know, he lifted up the suffering of others by taking it on himself. 
Now I want you to hear Matthew. Matthew also records this event. But Matthew's gospel, the first one in the New Testament, was written for a Jewish audience, Matthew. And Matthew has many Old Testament references and quotations that he weaves into his account of the life of Jesus, where Mark has very little of that by comparison. And Matthew adds an Old Testament text at this point in the story of Jesus healing all these people at the house of Peter. He says, this happened according to, or it was fulfilled, what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. This, this is Matthew eight seventeen. if you want the reference. And what he's quoting is Isaiah 53 and verse 4. And Matthew puts it like this. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That doesn't mean Jesus took him on himself and got sick. That's not the meaning. The, what it's talking about is his sympathy. That he lifted up these people that had such great need in with the sympathy and the compassion that he had, it was like he took their illnesses upon himself. Now, you know the difference between sympathy and empathy. The New Testament says Jesus is a sympathetic great high priest. Hebrews 4.15 uses the word sympathy. In the Greek, it's sympatheo. The idea of sympathy means to suffer along with another person. It is a fellow feeling of what they're going through. That's sympathy. Empathy just means you can understand how they're feeling, but not necessarily have those same feelings. That's the difference between those two. Jesus just didn't have empathy for people. He had sympathy. He felt the pain, the misery, the heartache of these suffering people who are suffering from sickness and disease and demon possession. The Old Testament is wonderful in this. Let me give you a text, Isaiah 63 and verse 9. Listen to this. This is speaking of God. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. That's true of Yahweh what William was talking about in Sunday school today, Israel in Egyptian bondage, when he came down in the burning bush and spoke to Moses, he said, I have heard their, their cries, I have come to deliver them. In the language of, of Exodus 3, it indicates that God was feeling along with the pain and suffering of his people. He was sympathizing with them. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Now, here's a New Testament text that bears this out about the Lord Jesus in particular. When Saul of Tarsus was on the way to Syria, to the city of Damascus, to persecute Christians. This is in Acts chapter 9. And he encountered the risen Christ. 
Jesus appeared to Saul in a light that was brighter than the sun at noonday. And it was so bright, it left Saul blinded for three days. He couldn't see anything. And you remember, this is, this is Saul of Tarsus' conversion. Dramatic conversion, his encounter with the risen Christ. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Lord, who are you? He didn't know it was Jesus talking to him. But notice, Jesus said, not, why are you persecuting my people? That's not what he said. Why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus is the head, his church is the body, the head is intimately connected to the body, so what the body feels is felt by the head. And Paul's anger and hatred and bitter opposition to the church was felt by Jesus. And he was coming to not kill Saul and send him into the pit of hell for his hatred of Christians. He came in grace to save him. It's an amazing story, the conversion of Saul. He became the great Apostle Paul, the great missionary to the Gentile world. Wrote half of the New Testament. Okay, now we come to the end. So the Lord Jesus, he healed all those people that were sick, the many with diseases. He cast out many demons. Now notice this. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus silenced demons. We saw it last week in the synagogue with the man that was demon-possessed. And the demons started to speak, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of... Silent, he said. And he stopped the demon from saying any more. He does that three times in the Gospel of Mark. He actually also silenced others. What is behind this silencing those, and especially here in this place, demons? Wouldn't we want the wouldn't Jesus want the testimony of demons to say and to broadcast who he is? No, Jesus didn't want that. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, he wanted to put a lid on that over his true messianic identity until the triumphal entry. Because there were political ramifications connected with the messianic office as the Jewish nation understood it. They were expecting a king, a triumphal warrior king on the order of King David, who was going to liberate The Jewish people from the yoke of Rome. This is what they were expecting. And he did not come like that. He came in humiliation and he came to die. This was utterly the opposite of what they were expecting. Remember, this is what he got in trouble with 
at the end, when he was Pontius, when he was before Pontius Pilate. Are you a king then? Pilate asked him. Yes, I am a king. He confessed it. Well, this was uh, this could have been understood as a challenge to Rome, a challenge to the emperor. And so the Lord Jesus, he didn't want any unnecessary trouble with the political world at this time in his ministry. So he, he tapped down all of this. Now, when he got in private with the disciples, just he and them, he asked them, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah the prophet, Elijah the prophet, and so on. Oh, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for all of them, said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And remember, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and so on. So in private, Jesus was making himself known, but he was keeping that his identity down. He was keeping it kind of disclosed for a while. But that also was in keeping with his character as Isaiah prophesied he was going to be and act like when he was in this world. One of Isaiah's titles for the Messiah is the servant of Yahweh. The servant of Yahweh. And Isaiah 42 and 49, I'll tell you these two chapters... It talks about the servant of Yahweh and the things it says about him. He's marked by being quiet. He's marked by restraint, humility, and concealment. He didn't lift up his voice and start yelling in the streets and so on. Isaiah 42. there, There was a reserve there that he had. And that really applies here to his not wanting his identity broadcast. So he silenced the demons. The demons all knew who he was. They knew exactly who he was. The the New Testament says that the demons believe and tremble. This is in James chapter 2. And there's, there's people in the church who have a faith that's no better than that. A belief no better than that. They know who Jesus is. They believe in Jesus in the the same way that a demon does. But they're not yet there with a saving knowledge of him. A person who has that understanding, a, a, a very good understanding as to who Christ is, he needs to move from being aware and informed and knowledgeable of the truth to then coming to put his full trust and faith in him. And that's what it means when it talks about believing in Jesus. It means to put your trust in him. Paul put it like this. I love Paul's words in 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him or I have deposited with him until that day. That day meaning the judgment day. Notice, Paul's faith began with a knowledge of Christ. I know whom I have believed. And then Paul went from knowing, and I am persuaded 
He's fully convinced, I'm fully persuaded, that he is able to take care of all of that which I have de- deposited. If you think of making a bank deposit, and you're putting all your money into the safekeeping of a bank. Paul made a deposit of his future, his eternal future, with Jesus Christ, because his knowledge of Christ was such that it led to this personal depositing all that he had into the hands of Jesus. This is where you need to come, my friend, in order to be a Christian. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So ask yourself today, do I believe like that? Do I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for my eternal life and my salvation? Can I say today, he is my Savior? Can you, can you talk like Thomas did? After Thomas saw the risen Christ, he saw the wound prints in his hands, the wound in his side. Thomas didn't need to touch them. He simply saw Jesus and he said, My Lord and my God. Can you use those personal pronouns and say, My Lord, my God. Is he your Lord? Is he your God? Is he your Savior today? Oh, I urge you to turn to him today. The Bible says today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't don't waste another day without knowing that you are in the safekeeping of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.